Hey friends, welcome back to Physiology Corner with Professor Howard. It's me, your host, Professor Howard. And today I'm coming at you live from my bedroom where I am folding laundry. I'm multitasking. Uh, I, <laughs> I think a lot of my students kind of imagine me since I haven't seen any of my students in over a year uh, as this nebulous presence that is only ever a professor, but it, I do in fact have a household to manage as well. And that includes mundane tasks like folding the laundry. So I am terribly bored by housework. I find it nearly intolerable. So I figured that maybe I could use this time wisely and multitask a bit um, to help the time pass because folding mine and my husband's 8,000 band t-shirts is just so tedious. Okay, so this is going to be a bit of a hybrid episode. Um, I'm going to describe some physiology that is relevant to my Biology 242 class, and I'm also going to describe some basic science principles that is relevant to really anybody that's trying to understand physiology, especially from the perspective of you all having taken prerequisites um, at Clark. Our basic biology class is called Biology 160. If you're coming to my podcast from elsewhere, this is going to be your garden variety 100 level biology class. So it's the class where you learn about cell organelles and the difference between prokaryotes and eukaryotes. And you learn some basic chemistry, usually talk about, um, you know, the chemistry of acids and bases and some water chemistry, etc. And... I know because I've taught basic biology and I've taught A&P for a long time that there's not a lot of context when you're learning biology at first. There, during your prerequisite experience, there's not a lot of context for why information might be important. And so what happens is myself and anybody else who teaches basic bio and also teaches later classes where, you know, basic bio comes into play or is useful, I know why you would need to remember something like the fact that the pH scale is logarithmic or the difference between facilitated diffusion and secondary active transport, um, a mistake that is often made by students. But, you know, in the, at the time when you're just trying to learn biology and there's so many new terms floating around, I know that students, you know, look at certain more complex biological processes and think, I'm just becoming a nurse. I'm never going to need that. Well, not to put too fine a point on it, but you're wrong. However, I think that instructors like me and my colleagues, we could really be doing a better job giving you the necessary context to help you understand why what you're learning is important and help you understand what the benefit uh, is of making sure that information stays fresh in your mind. So at this point in the year, my current batch of Biology 242 students are in the home stretch of the second term of human anatomy and physiology. And the home stretch in my course anyway, is primarily concerned with the waste disposal systems of the body. So We've got, you know, the digestive system, obviously, the respiratory system, and the urinary system. And 
these are really, really challenging chapters for my students because they require that you remember a bunch of stuff that you learned in the first half of anatomy and physiology that you may be kind of rusty on, but they also really require that you have good mastery of basic biological concepts that, you know, depending on who you are, you may have learned a really long time ago. But the fact of the matter is, your textbook authors and me, we can't reteach you that stuff. We assume that you have mastered it and that you can apply new knowledge and concepts to your mastery of basic bio principles. Now, in reality, I completely understand that that's not always the case, you know? Just as I am not only a professor, I'm also a, you know, pet keeper, home haver, wife, friend, etc. I know that all of you are busy adult humans with lives of your own, and so, you know, sitting down every day to remind yourself about diffusion is probably not high on your list of things to do. Um, so, to kind of assist this and also demonstrate my point, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to explain some diabetes pathophysiology, and I'm going to help connect that pathophysiology to what my students are currently learning about the urinary, respiratory, and digestive systems, and also with previous material uh, from basic biology that many people have probably forgotten. Um, and hopefully what I'll accomplish in doing that is to sort of refresh your memory about some stuff that's important that you may have forgotten and also sort of drive home the importance of staying fresh on basic bio principles as much as possible. So with that preface out of the way, let's begin, shall we? So... To contextualize, first of all, I'm going to talk about diabetes, and diabetes is not one-size-fits-all. There's different kinds of diabetes. So we've got, you know, they have various Latin names uh, to distinguish between them, but those are less important to memorize than the actual underlying problem. So in biological and medical science, the underlying problem of a disease, so like the cause of a disease, um, the cause of symptoms is called the etiology. So E-T-I-O-L-O-G-Y. So although diabetes is a spectrum of symptoms that are well understood and repeatable, repeatable, repeated across anybody who suffers from diabetes, the underlying cause of those symptoms does vary from person to person. So for example, there is a kind of diabetes that is uh, basically present typically from birth or early childhood into adulthood and that seems to be to some extent genetic. And that manner of diabetes is one in which the pancreatic islet cells that make insulin are for some odd reason attacked and destroyed by the immune system. So this isn't the kind of diabetes that you get from making, uh, you know, lifestyle choices about your diet and exercise. This is the kind of diabetes that you develop and you don't have any control over managing it um, or the development of it. It just comes at you one day. There's also the kind of diabetes that results from 
uh, chronic overnourishment, particularly of nutrients containing glucose. And this does have an element of family history as well. So for example, you know, uh, if your parents and grandparents developed type 2 diabetes later in life, the likelihood that you will as well is slightly increased. Um, but that's going to, you know, depend on your day-to-day -day activities around eating, exercise, what kinds of foods you choose to eat, etc. So different styles of diabetes, uh, according to etiology, but same symptoms overall. So what I'm going to do now is kind of give you a feel for those symptoms, and then I'm going to explain the etiology of each of them. So the problem with diabetes lies around the transport of glucose primarily. So our cells and tissues in our body, um, and I'm being vague on purpose because all of them, uh, they generally have a order of operations with respect to how fuel is burned. So in basic bio, you probably learned about the macromolecules of life. So carbohydrates, lipids, proteins, nucleic acids, etc. When we perform metabolism, what we're doing is trying to extract those molecules from the foods we eat so that we can use them to power our cellular processes, build things, store energy, etc. So that's the goal. And if you think back to what you understand about cellular respiration, and I'm probably some of you are shuddering with terror because you're remembering things like the citric acid cycle or Krebs cycle uh, and words like oxidative phosphorylation. And you're like, oh, God, I hated that. It was confusing. Um, and, you know, I agree. It's very, very complex, but it's important to keep track of because all of those processes center around breaking down glucose. Glucose is the preferred fuel source for our cells. The biochemistry of our cells is primed to if most efficiently and quickly extract energy from glucose, and other fuel sources are sort of lower on the totem pole. So for example, let's say you haven't, you're in a fasted state. Maybe you're doing intermittent fasting, or maybe you're just, you know, waking up and you haven't had breakfast yet. Um, you are basically relying on stored fat at that point to power your fuel needs of your cells. Um, but if you were to eat breakfast, your body will switch back over to prioritizing glucose. So the order of operations is, if available, glucose is used first. If glucose is not available we use fatty acids. And if those aren't available or are in short supply, the last option is proteins. We want to avoid using proteins for fuel uh, because proteins like enzymes and structural proteins, these are what holds our body together and allows us to perform metabolism. So you don't want to use those up if possible. So in the case of insulin insufficiency, which is type 1 diabetes, um, where the islet cells are being attacked and they can't make insulin. What insulin does under ordinary circumstances is to cause your cells to express glucose transporters. So glucose is big and it's polar, which means it can't 
across the cell membrane by itself. It needs help in the form of a protein that can carry it across. When insulin binds to receptors on cell surfaces, those cells express glucose transporters that permit glucose to enter the cell and be useful as a fuel. If there's no insulin, there aren't any transporters and the cell cannot use glucose. So if you can't use uh, insulin or you can't make it rather, that means that your cells and tissues are not going to be taking up glucose. There's nowhere for the glucose to go, so it just stays in your bloodstream. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, on a public transit system, every time the MAX train, for example, stops, uh, if you're not familiar with the MAX train, the MAX train is a public transit uh, light rail system in Portland. Um, if, you know, every time the train stops, people get off and people get on. In glucose's case, that would be like staying on the train as it makes its rounds and goes around and around and around and around and around. So as the patient, if their diabetes is unmanaged, as the patient eats, the glucose isn't leaving their bloodstream. It's staying there because it doesn't have anywhere to go. So glucose going around and around, not being used. So even though the patient is eating, the body thinks it's starving because the glucose is not entering the cells and tissues. So that switches metabolism over to prioritizing fatty acids. Fatty acids are great. Um, you basically can plug fatty acids right into the Krebs cycle. Um, Krebs cycle accepts reduced pyruvate into it, right? And then we're going to go ahead and break down pyruvate. That's a three-carbon molecule. Fatty acid tails um, are a hydrocarbon chain, and you can break those up into three-carbon chunks um, and basically turn them into acetyl-CoA, which can plug into the citric acid cycle. So that's how they're used. However, that has a byproduct, and the byproduct of fatty acid metabolism is ketone bodies. Um, so these are acidic compounds, uh, and this is an opportunity to discuss acids. So you may have forgotten the definition of an acid is a compound that donates protons to a solution. So if you have an acid, when you put that acid in water, a hydrogen cation, H+, or just a proton, enters the solution. And keto acids are acids. So if you are relying only on that kind of fuel to stay alive, you would expect to see an increase in ketone bodies in the blood and keto acids, which are making the number of protons in your bloodstream increase. The pH scale is a logarithm, meaning that the difference between a pH of 1 and a pH of 2 is a fold change not a linear increase, and it's also an inverse logarithm. So the lower the pH, like pH of 2 or 1, the higher the acidity of a solution. So with untreated diabetes, what if you had a close look at the blood, what you would see is lots of protons, too many, lots of glucose, too much, and other indicators like ketone bodies, um, including acetone, and that ends up in the urine. So if you were to look at the urine of somebody with untreated diabetes, 
It's going to smell fruity and faintly like acetone. And if you were to taste it, it would taste sweet. Now, if you're like, ugh, taste it, um, I am here to tell you that before modern times, when we could, you know, develop assays for glucose, etc., uh, old-timey doctoring involved a lot more tasting, including tasting urine to see if it was sweet. Uh, urine with lots of glucose, that condition is called glycosuria, meaning sweet urine. And there was no option for testing for that before modern technology came in, so doctors just had to taste the pee-pee, which is, I know it's gross, but it's true. So, if you have too much acid in your blood, that introduces problems. So one thing that's not often acknowledged is, like, why is having acidic blood even a problem? Well, the chemistry uh, inside and around your cells happens at a specific pH. So our bodies, cells, and tissues, they get their work done using enzymes. All enzymes have operating conditions that must be met in order for them to work best. And most of our body's enzymes are designed to work best at a pH of around 7.4 because that's the pH of blood or it should be anyway. There are exceptions to this rule. For example, the enzymes that digest protein inside of your stomach, they work best in an acidic pH, but that makes sense because your stomach is acidic, right? So elsewhere though, enzymatic activity is impaired by pHs that are too low or too high. And additionally, a proton is basically a hydrogen atom that has lost an electron. And hydrogen is already reactive, so hydrogen has one proton and one electron, which means it wants to have two because its valence shell should have two electrons in it. But acids, um, you know, the protons that come off, they would really like to have an electron. So if they are not prevented from doing so, what they'll do is run around and rip electrons off things, which is not ideal. So we don't want acidosis, which is the condition of having blood that's too acidic. Fortunately, your body has many mechanisms in place to deal with acidity, and we're going to talk about those because those are uh, basically feedback loops that get out of control with untreated diabetes and result in the manifestation of very recognizable diabetes symptoms. So, to understand this, one thing that is important to do is to go back to some very basic chemistry. So, you may remember, or maybe not, from Biology 160, if you're at Clark, uh, the carbonic anhydrase reaction. So, it's one of the earliest enzymatic reactions that students are introduced to in basic biology at the institute that I teach at. And that reaction is catalyzed by an enzyme called carbonic anhydrase. And it goes a little something like this. Carbon dioxide, which is a waste product of cell metabolism, and water, which actually is also a waste product of cell metabolism, metabolic water, 
Uh, these are combined and rearranged by carbonic anhydrase to form carbonic acid. Carbonic acid is H2CO3. Now carbonic acid, being an acid, immediately dissociates into a proton, H+, and an ion of bicarbonate, which is HCO3-, and it is a base. So the reason I'm stressing this is because this chemical equation is reversible. So it's an equilibrium reaction where it goes in one direction or another, favoring either the formation of bicarbonate and protons or the formation of CO2 and water, depending on the relative abundance of reactants and substrates. So it's going to be pushed in one direction or another according to whatever is going on with your blood chemistry or your plasma chemistry. So if we have a situation where there's a lot of ketone bodies in the blood, there are necessarily going to be more protons. So the overabundance of protons shifts the reaction to the left toward the formation of carbonic acid, and then carbonic anhydrase will turn that into CO2 and water. The benefit of this is that carbonic anhydrase basically takes extra protons, turns them into a weak acid, which is carbonic acid, it's not a very strong acid, and then changes all that into water and a dissolved gas. Water is neutral, has a pH of 7, and dissolved into solution, carbon dioxide also is neutral. So you can take an excess of protons and you can magically, chemically transmogrify them into things that are no longer acidic. What a handy trick. This does, however, affect renal function, and it also affects breathing. So let's start with its effect on respiration. My students are learning about the respiratory system, but I realize that my podcast listeners may not be as familiar with the human respiratory system uh, as I am or as my students. So I'm going to take a moment here to describe the neural control of respiration and CO2's role in that. So the underlying present, pres premise excuse me, of the respiratory control is respiration is a combination of voluntary and involuntary processes. So if you think about it right, I can choose to change my breathing pattern to do stuff like create speech like I'm doing now, or if I want to, I can scream, um, all kinds of stuff, or I can choose to hold my breath. So those things are voluntary. But also, uh, I luckily don't die when I go to sleep because my autonomic nervous system takes over and takes care of breathing for me. So... That's kind of a conundrum, right? Most things in the body we're used to thinking of as either completely voluntary or completely involuntary. So for example, I cannot control my blood vessel diameter using my mind. No one can. Um, but respiration is an exception, right? So like I can choose to change my breathing, but it also will go off without a hitch if I don't choose to have any higher consciousness input into it. So that's interesting, right? So you have in your brainstem uh, the pons and the medulla oblongata. So the pons is above the medulla and rostral, meaning towards the nose. 
And inside of those locations in the brain, uh, there are respiratory control centers. So in the medulla oblongata, there's two populations of neurons. They are called the dorsal and ventral respiratory groups, respectively. And the dorsal one is responsible for triggering the contraction of your diaphragm to draw in breath. So under normal circumstances, the dorsal respiratory group is just going to fire intermittently, causing your diaphragm to develop tension, and that will change the volume in your thorax to allow air to move in. The ventral respiratory group is for exhaling, but it's generally there for forced exhales only, um, because all you have to do to breathe out is simply allow your diaphragm to relax, and that will push air out. So passive, it during quiet breathing anyway, which is the breathing you're doing when you're at rest and not, you know, active, uh, respiration is passive. So you just have to allow your diaphragm to relax and everything else does kind of follow from that. Now up in the pons, you have two additional centers, and these are the pneumotaxic and apneustic centers. So let's start with the pneumotaxic center. Um, this is in the upper part of the pons, and basically it is going to control the rate and pattern of breathing. So all the dorsal respiratory group does is say, hey, breathe in. It doesn't say how long to breathe in or how deeply to breathe in. That's the pneumotaxic center's job. Um, so essentially it limits inspiration. So it puts an end to how much you can inhale. So it provides an inspiratory off switch. Um, and what it does is it basically inhibits the possibility for action potentials in the phrenic nerve, which is the nerve that innervates your diaphragm. Um, and that helps to regulate the respiratory rate, right? Because the, the deeper you breathe in, the longer breathing in takes, which means that breathing out will also take a long time and that slows your breathing down. The other center is called the apneustic center. And that promotes inhalation by basically bothering the dorsal respiratory group. So it can make inhalation sort of continue for a longer time uh, versus the pneumotaxic center, which puts a limit on how long you can inspire. So on the ventral surface of both the medulla oblongata and the pons, there are chemoreceptors. And these chemoreceptors, um, contrary to what you might imagine, they don't they're not interested in sensing oxygen. They are interested in sensing the partial pressure of CO2 in the cerebrospinal fluid and the pH of the cerebrospinal fluid. So those are much stronger actors on brainstem breathing centers than oxygen is. So when you have untreated diabetes and you have very acidic blood, that acid ends up in the cerebrospinal fluid. So earlier today I asked my students uh, Socratically, I was like, so yeah, who can tell me um, where the CSF comes from? And there was a you know short pause and then somebody said choroid plexus. And I said, okay, yeah, well, what is the choroid plexus? And then there was radio silence. So this is one of those times when I need students to make a connection and they haven't, it hasn't occurred to them to make it yet. So let's help reinforce that. The choroid plexus is a specialized network of capillaries in the brain, 
and they are covered over with astrocyte feet to control what is able to exit the blood and enter the CSF. So your cerebrospinal fluid comes from your blood. It's a blood filtrate. So by virtue of that, whatever is in your CSF is going to be reflective of what's going on in your blood. So with untreated diabetes, we have too many protons, and that ends up happening in the cerebrospinal fluid as well. So this change in pH towards acidity is detected by these chemoreceptors, and that triggers a very predictable respiratory pattern. Uh, so the pneumotoxic and apneustic centers, along with the dorsal respiratory group, change the way you breathe. And this is related to that chemistry that I mentioned. So if you have too much acid in your blood, that means there's too many protons. You can take care of that by promoting the loss of carbon dioxide. So if you lose carbon dioxide in your breath, that's going to favor a leftward shift of the equation such that protons in your blood are combined with bicarbonate that creates carbonic acid and then carbonic anhydrase will split that carbonic acid up into a pro or into excuse me water and carbon dioxide and if you keep breathing that carbon dioxide out you can scrub acid out of your blood just by breathing so accordingly your pneumotaxic center is going to essentially cause you to inhale and exhale preferentially so you get this deep heavy panting and it's not an effort to get oxygen like you might expect but rather this pattern of breathing which is called kussmaul respiration is your body's attempt to scrub extra protons out of your blood now of course the kidneys are also a key component of moving protons out of your system and that's why urine is typically more acidic than your blood so your kidneys are also going to be involved in this so if you took the urine of a diabetic patient you would see glucose and you would see ketones giving the urine a sort of fruitier acetone odor but you would also if you tested the ph expect the ph of the urine to be quite low and you'll find that is the case Interestingly, carbonic anhydrase is also active in the kidney tubule uh, as a way to scrub acid out at the level of the kidney. So carbonic anhydrase reaction, very important, sort of chronically underappreciated by early biology students because you guys aren't yet aware at that point about how much you'll need it, you know? So... Let's talk about the dreaded renal tubule and excretion of protons. So I just told you that piet acid, how does that work? Well, again, this harkens back to some basic biology principles, which most students kind of mentally throw away when they exit basic bio, because they're like, why would I ever need that again? Surprise, it's time for you to remember it. So let's discuss. In your renal tubule, and I'm using renal tubule generally here because acid excretion uh, primarily happens in the distal convoluted tubule, but it happens in the proximal convoluted tubule as well. So I'm not going to, you know, sort of be specific about where. Here's the general principle. In your renal tubule cells, 
you have sodium potassium pumps. So they're going to exchange three sodium for two potassium uh, across the cell membrane, just like the ones that you might remember from, well, any cell that's electrically excitable. So those pumps are important. So what these are going to do is pump sodium out of your renal tubule cells and into the blood. Um, sodium's useful, you want it back. So that creates an environment that is consistently low in sodium. So if you're always pumping sodium out, the inside of that cell is going to be low in sodium at all times. So this creates a really strong sodium gradient because, of course, we know, due to the laws of diffusion, that particles want to diffuse from an area of high concentration to an area of low concentration. So if I create a situation where sodium inside of the renal tubule cell is consistently very low because I have a pump at the basal surface of the cell, that is moving sodium out of that cell and into the blood, in exchange for potassium, of course, what I'm going to do is create a driving force in the form of a concentration gradient where sodium really wants to enter the renal tubule cell because it's low in there. A gradient represents potential energy. So if I put more of something on one side of a membrane and less on the other, I have changed the membrane equilibrium such that I now have potential energy stored up in the form of a chemical gradient, and I can use that to do work. So what can you do with this sodium gradient? Well, you can co-transport. So you can use a transporter protein and move sodium down its concentration gradient, which is the way it wants to go. And you can have something else move up its own concentration gradient along with it. So for example, um, this is the way that glucose, amino acids, nucleic acids, and other useful molecules are successfully transported out of your kidney filtrate and back into your blood. So like, you know, you don't want to lose glucose. So you might say co-transport glucose into the renal tubule cell and then back into the blood um, by having it basically hitch a ride along with sodium. So that's co-transport. Co-transport is a kind of secondary active transport. Um, it's secondary active transport because the transporter protein itself does not use ATP, but it wouldn't be able to do its work if ATP was not being spent by the sodium-potassium pump. So the sodium-potassium pump sets up the gradient, and then transporter proteins doing co-transport and antiporting are going to use the potential energy in that gradient to move something else against its concentration gradient, which you may recall moving of things against their concentration gradients is the definition of active transport. So filtrate is what I call it when the blood has been filtered at the kidney, but it's not urine yet because it hasn't been processed enough to call it urine. So that's what I mean when I say filtrate. So at the glomerulus, just like at the choroid plexus, water and other solutes filter out of the blood. But some of those solutes are things that you want back. Um, and along with that comes acid, so protons. Additionally, you have lots and lots of blood vessels inside of your kidneys, the paratubular capillaries, the vasa recta, which goes around the nephron loop. Um, and you know, these are locations where there's extra stuff in the blood as well. So if you have really acidic blood, what you want to do 
is get that acid, the protons, out of the blood into the renal tubule cell and into the filtrate so that you can get rid of them by peeing them out. So what you can do is basically use that sodium gradient to transport protons against their concentration gradient to scrub them out. So that's the, the overlying or, or overwhelming principle here is basically sodium gradient is energy available to do work. And although protons may not want to diffuse in the direction of the filtrate, we're going to make them do it anyway. So why is it against the concentration gradient at all? Well, there's a lot of protons in the blood in this diabetes situation I'm talking about, which means that there's going to be a lot of protons in the filtrate already. But we want to put more protons in the filtrate, additional ones, and we have to do that using our sodium gradient. So without going into too much detail about the you know, specific goings-on in the renal tubule, suffice it to say that Along with the action of carbonic anhydrase um, in both the filtrate and in the renal tubule cell, we also have uh, transport of protons against their concentration gradient happening because we are able to transport them uh, along with sodium. So sodium is entering the renal tubule cell at the apical surface, so the surface that faces the filtrate. So it's flowing down its concentration gradient. And in that same step, using the same protein, a proton is moved out of the renal tubule cell and into the filtrate. So it's a way to really scrub acid out of your body using your kidneys. And this is one of the reasons why long-term diabetes, if it's not managed very well, uh, can impair kidney function so badly that people end up needing dialysis or a kidney transplant. So diabetes is really, really hard on the kidneys in the long term, which is why you want to manage your diabetes as carefully and as well as you can. Because even if you're using insulin and other drugs, it can still be damaging to your kidneys in the long term. So we have covered in this podcast acid-base chemistry, equilibrium reactions with an enzyme. We have covered gas transport, neural control of respiration, the creation of cerebrospinal fluid, and we've also reviewed diffusion, concentration gradients, potential energy, and secondary active transport. Woof, that is a lot. So what I'll close by saying is that if you do nothing else as you make your way through biology and through anatomy and physiology, make sure you're checking in with your basic science frequently. Diabetes is a disease, and I don't have the exact figure, but it kills many, many Americans every single year. And the reason it does that is because without insulin, you can't scrub acid out of your body. You get stuck in a respiratory pattern that's unsustainable. And because there's so much glucose in the filtrate, 
it can't there's too much glucose in the blood to be properly filtered out and reclaimed uh it's exceeding the transport maximum look that up i'm not going to explain it in this podcast but glucose gives the filtrate unusual osmotic pressure um so glucose in the filtrate ends up exerting so much osmotic pressure that water is sucked back into the renal tubule and that creates a phenomenon called polyuria which is peeing too much and that severely dehydrates somebody suffering from untreated diabetes so you've got all of these problems and they're all really boiling down to basic science right those principles that i've touched on as i've moved through here so the real challenge of human a and p isn't memorization like most students think it is um, memorization will not get you very far in fact the real challenge of a and p is connecting what you're learning now with what you have learned and should have mastered before. So always be checking in with basic science. If you have a diabetic loved one in your life, help them manage their medications. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Hopefully by now you understand both diabetes and basic biology a little bit better and have some insight into this very common and pervasive health problem in the developed and developing world. All right. See you for the next episode. Thanks for your attention. Bye.